0: Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a debauched and rehabilitated romance podcast steeped in history. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector, and book talker under
1: the username Chelse underscore ebooks.
2: I'm Beth, and I'm on book talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads.
1: I'm Emma, a law librarian who writes about the intersection of justice and romance on the substack restorative romance. I'm also on book talk under the name mkick. Today, we're talking
0: about the Blackshear series by Cecilia Grant. From the years 2011 to 2014, Grant wrote three novels and one novella centered around this Regency era family. We'll be covering her full length novels today A Lady Awakened, A Gentleman Undone, and A Woman Entangled. In an interview with Kelly Gwynn on her website Romance Writers on the Journey, Grant revealed that she began writing Regency romance in 1995. She was heavily inspired by Georgette Hare and what she called Signet style traditional Regency. But in the 10 years it took her to write her first book, the landscape of historical romance had entirely shifted. If she wanted to sell, she'd have to learn how to write sex scenes and she'd have to find her own voice. And she most definitely succeeded on both accounts. Grant's writing is distinct, simultaneously prosaic and biting. She told Gwyn that her publishing deal came while she felt overwhelmed and overmatched in her IT job. And that email with an offer came with catharsis. The heroines in all three of her novels have a similar trajectory, an unsung talent that shapes them just as much as their relationships do. When I picked up her first book, A Lady Awakened, I knew I was reading a book that was seminal in the Chelsea romance canon. This book was clever and empathetic and introspective in a way that sank in my gut and refused to evacuate. I loved it and I wanted everyone to read it to understand me better. What's your experience with Cecilia Grant?
1: I'm almost positive that I first read Grant on Chelsea's recommendation. I think the first month that I read it was June 2022. I started with The Lady Awakened um, and was just totally bowled over by how she pulled off this plot, which we'll get into in a second. Um, The plot on paper feels impossible. Um, I had just read a Mary Bollig book that had a very neat family reconciliation that I didn't totally buy, and I wanted something thornier and messier, and I found it in the Black Shears.
2: Unsurprisingly, I also picked this up on Chelsea's recommendation, but I picked it up in December 2022.
0: It feels like this intro is just so y'all can compliment me on recommending.
1: Chelsea has amazing taste.
0: (laughs) That's not what I was going for, but I appreciate it. (laughs) We split this podcast episode into three parts, one for each book. Emma's going to start with the first in the series, which is also her favorite, A Lady Awakened.
1: So in A Lady Awakened, Martha Russell's husband has just died without an heir. So Seton Park, the home she's living in, will be passed to her husband's brother, Mr. James Russell, unless she produces a son within the next nine months. At the time of his death, Martha knows that she is not pregnant, but keeps this to herself to avoid immediate eviction from her home. When Martha discovers from her maid that Mr. Russell has a history of raping the women servants of Seton Park, She resolves to defraud him out of the estate. She devises a plan that involves a new man in town who has a reputation for rakishness and a need for cash. Enter Theo Mirkwood, who has been sent to his father's country house to settle down and learn some responsibility. Importantly, Theo's father has not given him an allowance to afford any amusements. Martha invites Theo to her home, and after some communication missteps, she offers him a deal. She will pay him £500 to help her conceive a child. Theo initially is taken aback and lists some scruples that he has, but eventually consents, primarily driven by his immediate attraction to the wrapped-up, stern widow. Their agreement calls for encounters every day for a month and starts immediately after their first meeting. Theo believes that the relationship will involve seduction on his part, but he is quickly disavowed of this notion. As he showers Martha with compliments, she rebuffs him and insists on getting it over with. Theo is confused by this, but takes his own pleasure, even his even in his disappointment at her neutral-to-negative responses to his sweet nothings and caresses. First, the meetings take place in the afternoons, and then move to evenings, and with growing friendship, Theo starts staying the whole night. Parallel to these meetings, they both begin aiding each other in their domestic missions. Theo is attempting to learn land management, though he knows little about the mechanics of farming, and Martha is struggling to connect with the people on and around her lands, given her short marriage, quick entering into mourning, and reserved personality. Martha's mind is well-suited for land management problems, helping Theo pick up with the necessary knowledge quickly, and Theo charms basically everyone he meets, surreptitiously sending middle-class moon from the town to call upon Martha and charming tenants on both of their lands. In their sexual relationship, Martha insists on not experiencing pleasure. This is important to the moral calculus she has done to justify her pious fraud. Additionally, she has no interest in Theo, physically or emotionally, as long as he is an unfeeling rake that she is using as a stud animal. Martha's words. But after he takes her to meet one of his tenants, Mr. Barrow, who they discover has fallen seriously ill and Martha sees Theo's affection for the man, as well as the rapidity with which he forms a plan of care, she decides to allow Theo to aid her in her pleasure. But at this point, Theo has grown more interested in her as a friend, companion, and advisor, and takes her displays of eagerness as indications that she wants the job over with faster. Theo has a meeting with the laborers to describe his plans for the lands, including starting a dairy farm. He commands the room and gains the laborer's trust, and Martha tells him just how proud she is of him. This inspires Leo to change the dynamic during their meetings, and with Martha in control, she's able to articulate her desires for him and he is able to understand them. The sudden and easy intimacy leads Theo to confess his feelings and propose, which Martha responds to with a pregnancy announcement. They separate coldly as Martha insists on continuing with her defrauding plan, which will not allow for marriage to Theo. When the wayward Mr. James Russell announces a visit, Theo calls on Martha again. She initially thinks he's coming to collect his 500 pounds of payment for their procreative success but instead he offers to aid her and her servants in protecting themselves from mr russell's lechery during the visit martha meets the brother's family and begins to doubt the morality of her scheme she amends her plan realizing she's not alone in wanting to resist mr russell's residence in town in a confrontation attended by various townspeople including one of mr russell's past victims the residents of seton park make it clear he will not be welcome in their town even if Martha's child turns out to be a girl, which would allow him to inherit. Theo had taken up a post in Martha's sitting room during Mr. Russell's stay to chastely protect her. After the town's showdown against Mr. Russell, Martha is emboldened to ask as directly as she can for Theo to share her bed once more. Theo is gone when she awakes, but she has one additional idea. Martha offers Mr. James Russell a choice. She will let him inherit independent of the results of her pregnancy if he is never in residence at the park, allowing his wife and two sons to live there or he can wait nine months to see if she has a son. He chooses the sure thing and returns to London. Martha hears that Theo has also returned to London and thinks he has left her. Actually, Theo has gone to London to explain what has happened to his family. His father is disappointed and confused by Theo's framing of the situation. A widow is pregnant with his child, but they cannot marry yet, and the child will not be recognized as Theo's, but Theo is in love with the widow. The women in his family indicate they will accept Martha and the child. Back at Seton Park, Martha prepares to go to her brother's home, having told the community she has miscarried. When Theo returns to the county, he hears reports of the miscarriage. He bursts into Martha's home and accidentally reveals to her present siblings that she is pregnant, since she has to explain to him that the miscarriage was a lie and explain to her siblings his presence. Martha proposes in a roundabout way to Theo and he accepts, in front of her confused family, surprised by this emotional drama from their starchy younger sister. When we're thinking about this book, I always call this book a slow burn where they're having sex the entire time. The sex scenes in this book feel so singular to this couple. Um, I compare them favorably to other romance novels where where the sex sort of seems to go in a required order of intimacy. Because of the nature of their arrangement, the first few sex scenes are really not that sexy. Instead, the intimacy comes from each of them opening up and even really through their actions rather than their words. So I really want to talk about how Martha and Theo talk to each other. So miscommunication is a big topic in how we talk about romance novels. People label things as miscommunication miscommunication trope a lot of the time. Do either of you consider this book a miscommunication book?
2: I see it as a miscommunication book because I see every romance book as a miscommunication book because you are learning how to communicate with the other person. That's the foundation of every relationship. So yes, I I would call this a miscommunication book.
0: Um. Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of one of the big things um, with Theo is that he thinks that it's going to be easy for him when he first starts sleeping with Martha. It's just like this big win for him, right? It doesn't end up working out the way that he thinks it will because Martha has this moral calculus. And it's something that he doesn't understand. Um, she deliberately keeps him in the dark for a lot of a lot of the book. So he doesn't really get in his mind why she's being so cold to him and why she's refusing to enjoy the experience.
1: Yeah, it's like I I feel like it's not quite a miscommunication trope. Like there there's one moment where they are they haven't spoken when he goes back to London and she thinks that he's left her that sort of has that like third act breakup. The words have not been exchanged from each other. But if you boil this down to a miscommunication trope in the third act you're missing all of the miscommunication that happens the whole book um though it's really i feel like it's miscommunication where they're they're just not speaking the same language like they are not saying things like they're they're talking to each other constantly because they see each other probably more often than most other romance novels that i've read but they are constantly with each other because they see each other every day for a month um like they're they don't have to wait for a ball to happen to see each other and have an exchange um, or even write letters to each other. They're just talking all the time. But the concept that I thought about when, with and it comes up a few different times in how they characterize their own language, they're constantly like wishing for the correct words. Like when Martha wants Theo to come to her bed, she says like, I wish I could signal to him. I wish I could, like I'm sending the wrong signals and I don't know what words to say because at that point when she's asking him to perform a certain way, he thinks she's just trying to get this over with. Um, and she, she doesn't realize, like, what, what she needs to say. And there's this concept in, like, legal writing um, that is called, like, magic words. It, when you're writing, when you're making a legal argument, there are certain words that lawyers sort of imbibe with extra meaning. Like, um, I think a lot of people who are not lawyers call them, like, legalese. And it's like, why do these legal words have specific meaning while their commonplace words don't have that meaning? And I think that's the lesson that Martha and Theo learn With their communication is that there are no magic words there is no like special correct thing that they could say to each other that would suddenly make them trust each other what they have to do in order to get to this place of trust is like this action and i love that there's not actually a big moment where they say the correct thing to each other even the scene where martha is able to ask theo like i want to be with you i want you to come to my bed she does it through her actions and they are able to understand each other because of this level of trust they've established, she's not giving this big speech saying like, I'm ready for this like relationship. I'm ready for this moment. Even her proposal is, I think her sister is there and she says like, was that a proposal? Like, did you, did I just witness that? Was that actually a proposal? But Theo and Martha both understand, like that was a proposal. That's, that's how they communicate with each other is through this like shared language that only comes through trust and action. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with everything you said. <laughs>
2: I yeah I like the idea of magic words and I almost think of it well I feel like there's this thing that will happen often in books and I call it the big conversation where it's like the pivotal moment happens after the big conversation but between Martha and Theo it's the accumulation of just a lot of actions a lot of time spent together that eventually leads them to
1: getting on the same foot. Yeah, and in so many miscommunication books, like when people complain about miscommunication, they say like just have a conversation, right? Like that's always the answer. Like they're like, why don't these characters just talk? Theo and Martha are talking the whole book. They're they're constantly talking to each other, but they're just they're done. They're not ready. There's no way for them to be on the same page until the end of the book. So there's you can't be wishing for them to have a conversation. Because they're, they're doing that all the time. So it's not an easy fix. Yeah, you bring a lot of other
0: baggage to a conversation. Like you have different points of views and you're interpreting what the other people are saying in a way that they might not necessarily have meant. Or maybe they meant it, but not quite as mean.
1: I was just thinking that they're, it's like also Martha and Theo both are sort of saying similar things to each other the whole book. Like do more, do more in the bedroom. And at the beginning, it's like, get this over with. Like stop. Stop trying to make this last longer, and then by the end of the book, it's like do more because like I want to be with you. I'm in love with you, um, and he's interpreting them the same way because she's established this like grammar of talking.
2: I really like that because I think it can be very hard to change a dynamic once it's been
1: set. And Theo and Martha are able to do that by the end of the book. So I guess on the theme of like what actually happens in the book, and I reference this in saying like my experience of first reading Lady the A Lady Awakened. The plot in this is a little bonkers. Um, I am sometimes resident to call plots and romance novels bonkers. Um, but the plot of this book is something that is often sort of uh, alighted to or alluded to in um, other romance novels. And it's the idea of a widow having a child to defraud a will. And so I wonder if either of you could talk about other experience you've, you've um, had with books that involve like widows and having heirs or getting an estate and because I feel like it's pervasive in romance novels, but this is the only one I've read that sort of acts on this fear of a widow defrauding a will.
0: There are a few books that come to mind, although not necessarily the exact same scenario. In The Edge of Impropriety by Pam Rosenthal, um, there's a widow named Marina. She's a writer and she has this air of mystery because the tone is always guessing who she's inspired by. Her latest muse is a young man named Anthony. And Marina's not actually interested in Anthony. She's interested in his uncle, Jasper, who is a scholar. It turns out that Anthony, who is titled, is not his father's son. He's Jasper's son. It's this huge secret, although the reader knows pretty much the whole time. There's also Flowers from the Storm by Laura Kinzale. The Duke of Shuvo is sleeping with his lover in the beginning of the book, and he's fondling her pregnant belly, telling her that she needs to quickly sleep with her husband in order to pass off her baby as legitimate. Uh, This does not go to plan. (laughs) And I might be stretching with this one, but I keep thinking about Not Quite a Husband by Sherry Thomas. Uh, There's no baby and no widow, but there is fraud in the disillusion of marriage. I'm not sure if I should say divorced or annulled. Uh, Maybe you can tell me the difference, Emma.
1: So the difference between an annulment and a divorce, and this is still true now, an annulment is when a marriage is erased. It never took place legally. Often it is because some element of the marriage contract is off. So a famous attempt at annulment is Henry VIII trying to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. He had gotten a papal dispensation in order to marry her because she was his brother's widow, Catherine had testified that she had never consummated her marriage with Henry's brother, so Henry and Catherine were allowed to get married. But when Henry decided he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, it was argued that the original dispensation was faulty. So Catherine and Henry's marriage should be annulled. The Catholic Church disagreed, and the rest is history. So now, when people like, seek an annulment, it's because they haven't consummated a marriage. Like, if you have a quickie marriage in Vegas and you don't sleep together after you're married, you can annul it. So the function of annulment is to say that you were never married at all. It just takes it off the books. And this comes up a lot in historicals where they will say, well, we're not really married until we consummate it. Um, So there's this sort of supremacy of consummation as the final factor that creates a marriage. So yeah, um, consummation would generally be the difference between an annulment and divorce. There can be other factors because with a divorce, you actually have to break apart the marriage. like The contract has taken place and is binding in some way. Thank you. So
0: it is annulment. (laughs) Bryony and Leo have been married for a year and they've consummated it. Uh, But Bryony convinces Leo to lie and say that they haven't so that they can get the marriage annulled. And this kind of like sets off the second chance romance. So that's another fraud. Lastly, there's... Destiny's Surrender by Beverly Jenkins and The Scottish Duke by Karen Rainey. Uh, they're kind of similar uh, in one regard. Both books have the heroine get pregnant by the hero in the beginning of the story, but the hero casts doubt on legitimacy. I think both books, they knew from the get-go that the child was theirs, and it wasn't a suppositious air situation.
1: So the phrase that Chels just mentioned is a legal term for what is happening in this book, and that's suppositious heir. Suppositious just means based on assumption rather than fact, and this refers to any person who's passed off as a legitimate heir when they are not. Um, there are two ways that this could happen, both of which Martha considers in the book, a widow being pregnant and passing it off as her husband's, or, and the stealing or purchasing of a baby and passing it off as her own. Grant does not use this term, but as I was rereading the book, I wondered if this moral panic was invented for romance novels, or if it was something that people were actually worried about in the 19th century. So I did some legal research into older jurisprudence to see what people were talking about in the 19th century. Because it has a name, suppositious error, it does seem to be something that courts were worried about happening. But the anxiety seems to be much more about passing off a stolen baby as an error, which Martha does consider in the book, but it decides against pursuing because she can't stomach the ethics of it. The actual cases that use this phrase um, were much more likely to be about an adult who had been Sort of brought in to be an heir but not actually be a legitimate heir or um, a stolen baby um, being passed off as a direct heir for pregnant wives there's a strong presumption of legitimacy of birth at common law even when circumstances make it very likely that the child was not the father's so if a couple is married um, they tend to assume that the child is legitimate blackstone a famous legal commentator acknowledges that the, there's this historical law that bars widows marrying within a year of their husband's death. Martha and Theo referenced this tradition, but this would not be a law per se that they're beholden to, as much as a tradition that's sort of um, to keep everything on the up and up. Suppositious errors also come up in medical jurisprudence guides. Um, the idea that doctors might be called to testify to the mechanics of this process seem to be really distasteful to the writers. Quote, In England and elsewhere, precautions are taken which are as offensive to female delicacy as they are ineffective to the demonstration of truth. This guide basically suggests that artists would be as qualified to determine parentage as the doctor. So based on the jurisprudence that I've seen, the courts had an idea that this was a thing, but they realized it was would be almost impossible to litigate. They really feel like it shouldn't be a question for the courts. And if a woman was found out to have defrauded in this way, um, she does not seem to be subject to punishment. Again, Blackstone um, acknowledges that this was something that would be um, punished under Gothic law, so Central Europe medieval law, but that common law in England would not punish a woman for doing this, um, at least in the courts. So of course, Martha and Theo don't steal a baby. They have a baby. They live happily ever after. I think this book is perfect. It's, um, I love all three of these books, but this one is just totally um, perfect Emma Soup. So I'm going to throw it to Chels, and they're going to talk about A Gentleman Undone.
0: In the second book in the Blackshear series, Will Blackshear has recently returned from the war. Having sold his commission, he is now just a gentleman, playing cards at a gaming club. We start with his point of view, and it quickly becomes clear that he's hard up for cash and extremely depressed. But that takes a bit of a backseat because he notices four courtesans. Three of them are beautiful, and his eye lingered naturally on the fourth. During the card game, the conversation turns to the women nearby. The protector of the courtesan Will is enraptured with, Roanoke, brags to everyone within earshot that the reason he selected her to be his mistress is because she cannot have children, so he doesn't need to worry about fathering bastards. Later that evening, Will hides in a dark and secluded room upstairs, only to be interrupted by Roanoke and the woman, who he's since learned is named Lydia. Against his better judgment, he lingers, once again enraptured by Lydia. Just as he's about to quietly leave the room, they make eye contact. Later that night, Lydia and Roanoke join Will at the cards table. Roanoke nods off and Lydia picks up his hand of cards. Will despondently watches as Lydia slowly fleeces him to the tune of 180 pounds. Three nights later, they are all back at Beecham's, the card room. Roanoke has fallen asleep and Lydia quietly, unassumingly makes small bets and rakes in money. Lydia notices that Will is watching her intently and Will confronts her later that evening. He says that he knows she was cheating and he demands his money back. Will attempts to appeal to Lydia's morals, saying that the money can't be of any consequence to her and that he needs it desperately. But this was the wrong thing to say. Lydia refuses to return the money. Lydia then takes her lady's maid, Jane, with her to a bank to invest in an annuity. Lydia's plan is to let her card earnings grow so she can eventually support herself, as her position as a mistress is precarious and she wants to be self-sufficient. The clerk recognizes Lydia from the brothel she used to work at, and he stops helping her and begins to leer. Lydia and Jane leave, unsuccessful. Meanwhile, Will brings his sister Martha to visit a woman named Mrs. Talbot. Mrs. Talbot is a widow to a man that Will knew in the war. After her husband dies, she and her son have to live with a relation that is less than kind. Will feels responsible for the well-being of Mrs. Talbot and her son, but it's unclear as to why Will feels culpable for his death. On the long walk home from the bank, Lydia and Jane pass Will and Martha in a curricle. Will stops and offers Lydia and Jane a ride. When Lydia refuses to take the ride as there isn't space for three, Will jumps out of the curricle and offers to walk Lydia home. She rejects him, but he insists, walking several paces behind her so they don't look like a couple. The next time Will sees Lydia and Roanoke at Beecham's, Lydia deals while Roanoke sleeps once more. Lydia asks Will if he'd like to buy another card, and this strikes him as odd because he can buy or twist according to the rules. Surely Lydia knew that, which leads him to realize that Lydia was telling him to buy. He proceeds to follow her directions, winning 180 pounds, the exact amount that Lydia fleeced him for. At a house party on a different day, Lydia retreats to a secluded room to play cards. Will finds her and attempts to ask how she was able to win his money back. Lydia reveals her proficiency at cards, and Will is awestruck. Lydia proposes that they help each other. She'll teach him cards, and he'll help her find a man of business to store her money. When it becomes clear that Will will never have the same level of talent that Lydia does, they change the plan. Together, they come up with an elaborate system of tells, with Lydia communicating to Will how to place bets, and Will following along. The first night they try, they win over 1,000 pounds. Lydia and Will kiss triumphantly, but Will breaks away, having second thoughts. Lydia gets angry and cuts ties with Will. Later, they meet at a house party they're both attending and reconcile. Lydia tells Will her family history, that her parents died in a carriage accident, and that she lost her brother in the war. Lydia went to work in a brothel partially to make money, but partially to slowly kill herself with disease. When Roanoke offered to make her his mistress, he took advantage of her ignorance and didn't set terms for settlement, which is why Lydia has nothing to fall back on. Later that evening, Will, who is still incensed by Lydia's story, places a bet with Roanoke. The terms are salacious. If Will wins, he gets a night with Lydia. Will does win, and Lydia is humiliated by her protector turning her over, and angry with Will. He tries to explain that he wanted to buy her a free night, but it doesn't comfort her. Lydia and Will eventually sleep together, and Roanoke insults Lydia and implies he'll take Jane, her maid, as a mistress instead. Lydia slaps him, and Roanoke backhands her in return. Will intervenes and challenges Roanoke to a duel. Lydia begs Will not to duel Roanoke, but Will refuses. Knowing that Will is counting on their money to assist her in the event of his death, Lydia gives it all to Mrs. Talbot, the wife of the dead soldier Will knew. When Will shows up to the duel, Roanoke asks Will not to tell his younger brother, who is acting as his second, the circumstances of the duel should he win. Will thinks that since Roanoke is experiencing regret, he might apologize and end the duel. But Roanoke does not. Last minute, Will tells Roanoke that he will delope. When the duel begins, Will aims his gun away, while Lydia watches on, smiling. In the epilogue, Will and Lydia are married. We learn that Roanoke deloped as well, and Will and Lydia made lives for themselves in trade, with Will working as a clerk at the docks. They are living on diminished means, but they are blissfully happy with each other. So this is my favorite book out of the series, um, partially because I am just obsessed with Lydia. I adore her, Uh, which kind of gets me to the first talking point. Um, Something that really stands out about that book is that Lydia is, of course, a courtesan, but she's another man's courtesan for over two-thirds of the book. Historical romance has a fraught relationship with sex work and courtesans, but I truly love how Cecilia Grant handles Lydia's character. What do you think about this, Emma?
1: (laughs) I think it's so good because Lydia is so smart. Like She's so fun to read in this um, economic role that she's in. And I also love, like you said, two-thirds of the book is such a big portion. I think other courtesans that we meet in historical romance often are just leaving their employers or don't have a dedicated employer where it's she's really Roanoke's woman. I can think of other ones where it's like it's it's sort of referenced obliquely. This one like we see she has sex scenes with Roanoke like we she's having sex with him for a big majority of the book and it's so novel which I love and it it really makes the sort of discussion of sex work I think much more robust. I think a good test of whether an author is doing something sort of for fetishistic purposes, or sort of just to get points for plot, is how often we see the person in a community and in the situation themselves. And the fact that we are seeing her do sex work throughout the book, I think is a good indicator that this is really a big part of Lydia's character and Grant is thinking about it really in depth.
2: Beth? I don't have too much to add beyond what Emma said, other than I liked that Lydia enjoyed her work. And a lot of other people noted that in reviews as well.
0: Yeah, I think kind of Another point that I would add for Lydia being a sex worker is that I really love the way that Grant specifically lays out how sex work is work with like the highs and lows. Something that I really loved about this book is that there are many times where Lydia is just so bored with Roanoke. (laughs) She's waiting. She, uh, She has a thought. She's, she thinks, go away until you have another erection. Because he's talking to her about a house party and asking her about plans. And she's like, I don't care about this at all. And you don't know me and don't care me enough to realize. And another thing, too, that I really love about how this book handles Lydia and her being a sex worker is that I think sometimes there is like a, a sort of like when uh, a couple is end game the sex is like transformative in a way yes and i think grant really avoids that here or at least avoids it uh in a way where it's not just like the physical pleasure is overwhelming for lydia i think for will <laughs> it was kind of overwhelming for will <laughs> um but like but lydia has you know she's She's been doing this for a long time, uh, she enjoys her work. I there's kind of like a lot of humor in kind of the way that she uh, she references it and and thinks about it, and even though she thinks Roanoke is as dumb as a bag of rocks, like she still really enjoys sleeping with him. But moving on from Lydia, so I want to talk about Will, um, so specifically about like Will and honor, because that comes up in the book a lot. Honor is very important to him. It has everything to do with himself and how he values himself. A big thing about Will is that he obviously has PTSD after coming back from Waterloo, and that completely warps how he sees himself. When Will confesses to Lydia what happened at Waterloo with Talbot, the soldier, and the true reason why he feels responsible for his widow, this is kind of like him peeling back the curtain. So what happened is that Talbot was gravely injured, and Will decided that he wasn't going to let him die. So he tries to move Talbot and ends up injuring him even more. I think he gives Talbot a spinal injury. And so at that point, Talbot is in deep pain and he begs Will to kill him. And Will does.
2: What did you think about this reveal, Beth? Well, it is shocking, it is an illuminating insight into Will's character. It's almost like Will and Lydia live their lives to make up for past tragedies. Will stemming from Waterloo and Lydia with her parents.
1: I think that's another example of the sort of the specificity that Grant is able to do with these different situations, because Waterloo, again, like one of these things that looms large in historical romance, it's often the disability, uh, the disabling event for heroes that we, if someone has lost a limb, if someone has an eye patch in the Regency period, Waterloo is sort of there. But this, we really deal with, there's like a specific thing that happened to Will. Like it's not just Waterloo in general. Like there's a specific interaction. We get the description of that. We see him reveal it to someone else. So it's just all of these things that are, I think it's it's it is a testament to Grant's like character work and her plotting that she just doesn't let it be this like backdrop. So within the novel it becomes like that much more emotional and like connective for the reader to will. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: So Beth, you had some thoughts on Lydia's intelligence that I want to talk about.
2: Okay. So writing actual smart characters is difficult because you want to show your character doing something smart and the audience might not realize the level of skill needed for what the character is doing. For example, if a character applied a unique piece of knowledge about computers, it might go over the heads of readers if they don't have at least a basic knowledge of what the character is doing. So then the author needs to give you the information you need that is not info-dumpy, and the best way to do this is to integrate it into the plot. Like the courtroom scene on Chernobyl where Jared Harris explains what went wrong, it also doubles as educating the audience. So same with the probability scenes where Lydia teaches Will how she counts cards and he's unable to replicate what she can do. So she suggests working together. And it's not like, look how smart she is for no reason, but the real crux of it is how they both quickly need money and she's leveraging a skill she has. I love
0: the way that Grant writes the card sequences because, like Will, I felt as though I was half-following, but I was a bit overmatched. So Lydia is just running circles around everyone, and while she can explain what she's doing in a way that we can kind of understand or at least begin to, it's something that's well outside of most of our capabilities. Uh, There's, of course, the part where Lydia shows off, like that's kind of like this wow moment for Will where... Lydia is kind of reveling in Will seeing her as a person with value. um, And that's kind of how she can fly under the radar playing cards because she's not beautiful and she's a woman. So people kind of see her as unassuming when she can, frankly, skin you alive.
1: Lydia is one of the most intimidating romance novel heroines I've ever read. Like, I think I would be, like, scared to meet her. Which it's like that is not and she's but she's not mean it's like that's not uh, I think a lot of times when you write an intimidating sort of thorny woman it's because she's cruel and has to get over that or she's like vain and has to get over that but she's just so smart that like (laughs) that really is the the trait for her and it's so it, it just makes her this someone who like I can't think of a heroine who I'm like oh that's that's like she's that type it's Lydia's really like of herself.
0: So Minnie from The Duchess War by Courtney Milan is another character that I sort of group with Lydia. Minnie is a master at chess, so she has that specialized skill, but she has an overwhelming intelligence, kind of like Lydia. And the Duke, her love interest is like, oh, God, she's out of my league. (laughs) Her skill definitely goes beyond hot girl hobby, uh, which is your thing, Emma.
1: I can quickly explain what a hot girl hobby is, uh, Is if you don't follow me on TikTok as I talk about these all the time. A hot girl hobby is the thing that the woman occupies with herself with in a romance novel. Like the hero is usually titled. He has land. A hot girl hobby for heroes in romance novels is often being a landlord. But hot girl hobbies, it's like this way for an author to show off their historical knowledge. Like it's like, oh, she's a beekeeper. Here's how they kept bees in the Regency period. She is a spelunker. And here's what Regency caves were like. And I love reading these books because I love hearing about the the hobbies and how these women spend their time. But sometimes the hot girl hobby comes across as really like perfunctory. It's like, okay, like this is, this is how she spends her time. There's going to be a meet cute involving the hot girl hobby. It will probably allow for her and the hero to be alone together. It's it, you can sort of predict the the beats of the hobby. But Lydia, I think because she's a sex worker, so she has a job, so it's not just card games or it's not just a way for her to occupy herself. Like she's using it for uh, additional funds, but also she's spending a lot of her time doing her actual job. That it doesn't come across as that sort of like, oh, like now now here's how here's the cute thing that the heroine is going to like explain to us in historical terms. That's fun to read, but is sometimes sort of surface level in its engagement.
2: And sometimes I feel like the hot girl hobby is just getting a character from one point to another in one of Amanda Quick's book. Amanda Quick's book that's hard to say um (laughs) the the heroine she loves fossils this is like a joke I think about his draw. ravished (laughs) yes where but honestly it just gets her to the cave do you know what I mean like it's not beyond that it's not really adding much to her character the way that
1: counting cards
2: and stuff is adding to Lydia's depth
1: or it's like the hero will take her hobby seriously it's like I want to open a lending library and I can't Yes. But this hero, I'm going to marry the Duke who will help me open the lending library. Yeah. Um, And so it's like sort of this test of like like female value for the hero. It's like, oh, he sees her value through this occupation that she takes up, which again, it could kind of be subbed in like the lending library could be fossil hunting. It could be beekeeping. It could be beer making. These are all things that for any given heroine, they could be doing anything in the structure. That's not true of Lydia and Card. She has to be doing something there. She can earn money and also like get the edge up on other people.
0: Yeah, and that kind of gets me into my next point, which is the card scenes are where Lydia and Will truly start to establish intimacy. So Lydia and Will have devised this elaborate system of tells. They're pretending they don't know each other. Lydia is a flirt looking for a mark, and Will is just some guy, but the way they communicate is so intricate. Uh, For example, Lydia sizes up Will while she's in character and says, you've just come out of the Navy, and you've got prize money wearing holes in your pockets. And so the quote from Grant is, Navy was the pertinent word. Any maritime reference must lead him to boat, from boat to sank, from sank to sink, which is the French word for five. Will needs to bet five counters with this. How elaborate is that? How could you possibly remember that? It's just, uh, not only do they have this, like, five layers in this, but then Lydia is also, like... Sending like little digs and signals to Will while they're betting—that it's just like hilarious—and Will is like, "What is happening?"
2: <laughs> yeah, she's lapping him intellectually, and I'm like, "Will, where? Wait, what was that again?" I, <laughs> I don't know how he kept track of that, but I do like it how it doubles as uh, building their intimacy as well, like you said, these scenes.
1: I feel like anytime you have game theory in a romance, it's like there has to be the game and then there has to be like the macro game above it for it to work. It's like everyone has their cards, but the game is in the like looks over the cards. Um, and if that doesn't work, then like, you're, again, you're just, it's just like plot dressing. But, but I lo- I mean, I love game theory and romance levels. I wish more authors sort of took up that sort of like, like math aspect of it where, because I feel like romance and sort of, Flirting is game theory. Like you're always looking for an algorithm of like, how do we match these things up together and like get the right input for the right output or the opposite, get the right output for the right input. So in conclusion, Lydia can step on
0: my throat. Speaking of intimidating women, uh, there's one in our next book, um, and this is actually Beth's favorite. So I'm going to pass it along to her.
2: Yes, A Woman in Dangled is my favorite, so let me give a quick summary. Kate Westbrook is beautiful, and she knows it. Her father married an actress, and his family disowned him for it. Mr. Westbrook is the son of an earl. Nick is a barrister and works with Mr. Westbrook, enjoying a close association with his family. He tried to propose to Kate three years ago, but she aspires to marry into the aristocracy and reclaim her family's status. They've settled into friendship. Kate delivers congratulatory notes to her aunt, Lady Harrington, every time one of her children gets married. She's done this over the past five years, hoping for an in with her aunt into the society she wants. Finally, she gets a response from Lady Harrington to meet with her. Nick disapproves of this because her father never attempted to reach out to his family after they cut him off. Besides, Kate hasn't told her family about her attempts to reconnect with the Westbrook extended family. Mr. Westbrook talks Nick up to Lord Barclay, an aristocrat who actually wants to do his job as a politician. He needs speech and argument lessons. Nick hopes a connection with him will advance his political aspirations. He needs money for land to qualify for the House of Commons. Barclay hasn't engaged a secretary yet, which, if he hired Nick, would provide Nick with money and a connection. Nick has disowned Will for the sake of his future career. Kate meets with her aunt. At her aunt's house, she meets Miss Smith, who is socially higher than her and has a dowry yet is plainer. Her aunt proposes a plan to introduce Kate into society so she can become a lady's companion. This devastates Kate, and later when she talks to Nick about it, she owns he was right. He responds by supporting her and says she'll still meet gentlemen at the ball. When Mr. Westbrook finds out he'll be at the same ball, he asks Nick to chaperone Kate, which he agrees to do. At the ball, Nick speaks to Lord Barclay, revealing nothing about his brother's marriage, although he feels he should disclose it. Nick discovers Kate outside with another gentleman. He sends him away and then lectures Kate in an empty room for being caught alone with a man. They're almost caught and duck behind some furniture for a few minutes. Nick apologizes for his hypocrisy, and then a forehead kiss leads to a full-on kiss. Kate tells Nick she's not sorry it happened. Three days later, Nick's at the Westbrooks giving Barclay speech lessons. Barkley asks Nick if he has any feelings for Kate, and he says they're friends. Nick and Kate receive invitations to the Cathcart's Ball. After reflecting on his own dubious behavior with Kate, Nick impulsively visits Will at his work. He's not there, and Lydia dismisses him rudely. At the ball, Kate enters and her beauty still strikes Nick, but he tells Barkley he should dance with Kate. Nick dances with Mrs. Simcox, someone he hopes to go home with. Mrs. Simcox asks Nick to leave the ball early with her but he has to wait for Kate so she goes with another man. Kate's dance partner fails to show up. He's the one with Mrs. Simcox, although she doesn't know that. So she goes looking for him and finds Nick relaxing in a room by himself. Nick berates her for yet again being alone with the man. Kate says she's looking for her dance partner when she names the man. Nick tells her he left with a woman. They talk for a bit and Kate says Nick can confide in her and he says she's not the person he'd confide in. Kate realizes she's been a friend of Gossamer Substance and places a hand on his arm, inviting him to kiss her. He recoils and asks her what she's doing. Kate lashes out, saying he didn't oppose kissing her last week. Nick says Mrs. Simcox was right, that Kate had put him on a shelf and is only giving him attention now because she fears her power over him is waning. She says she doesn't believe he's not impartial to her based on their kiss. Nick is angry now and says there's a difference between regard and lust, and he only did what any other man would do. She slaps him, he kisses her, then they make it to the couch and he gets her off. After he promises he won't say anything to anyone. Her virtue is still intact, and they don't have to act any differently around each other. During her visit with Lady Harrington Emma Smith, Kate's grandma falls ill. As they leave, the Smiths offer to help Kate find her father so he can be there. Eventually, they end up at the courts where Will takes care of getting Westbrook to his mother. After her grandma passes, Kate's father tells her he grieved his family a long time ago, and she's lucky she has an affectionate family on her mother's side. Later, she makes her way to Nick's house, saying they'll never have one another in marriage, so she wants to be with him one last time since she hasn't given up her hope of marrying into the aristocracy. They sleep together. Afterwards, Nick says he wants to rekindle his relationship with Will. Kate believes it's a good idea, even though she initially supported him when he cut Will off. After seeing what family estrangement is like when it's dragged out for years, she wants his happiness to be his primary motive. Nick visits Will and tells him about Kate. During this recital, he realizes he still wants to marry her. He sees Barkley, confesses his connection to Will, and Barkley's cool about it. He also tells Barkley that he wasn't truthful before, and he's in love with Kate. He proposes. She says it would suit her to be a politician's wife. They get married. Okay, so a point I wanted to touch on is that in all three books, each woman is aiming to protect other women. Martha with her household, Lydia with her maid, and Kate wants to save her youngest sister Rosalind from all the bullying she gets around her family situation. So I was wondering if either of you agree with that assessment.
1: Yeah, it does seem important that, like, the the scheme in each book is the woman's doing. Um, even when they we're starting with the the hero's perspective, the person who's coming up with ideas is the heroine. And there's, I think these, all their schemes are, like, complicating for them. Like, I think you could, like, especially for Kate in this one, like, Kate has this vanity, um, which I think is a common trait of historical romance novel heroines. I think we're going to talk about this later, but she's definitely, like, cut in the mold of, like, Emma Woodhouse. Like She has a very keen sense of what she looks like and how she's going to use that for marriage And because she needs to, unlike Emma Woodhouse, who's independently wealthy. But the scheme and like why she's doing these things from the jump, it makes her so much more sympathetic than a heroine who's just focused on her vanity. Even as you're reading some of her quotes about herself, you're like, she's really full of herself, but you know why she has sort of grown up as this older sister, knowing that this is sort of the skill she has. offer and maybe um, help her family out. Yeah, Kate knows
2: her beauty is a useful asset. Grant demonstrates this right at the beginning of the book when she and Viola are in a bookshop together. Viola is her sister. A young man sees Kate and blushes and ducks his head back behind his book. Kate had seen a dozen variations of this reaction. Then she has this thought, not terribly useful, the admiration of such a man. Still, it gave a girl hope. If she could not one day, drive a Marquess, for example, into a like slack jawed stupor, and why should she not? So, I like how you tied it to Emma Woodhouse. Emma's not really preoccupied with her beauty, but she has the luxury of not thinking about it because she's independently wealthy. Kate has this uh, ace in her back pocket so she can leverage it to get back into the aristocracy because she kind of sees it as her birthright. And I think even deeper than that, she does want to reconnect with her family. Like, I know she's social climbing, but the underlying feeling she has for most of the book is she mourns the loss of, like, seeing her uncle and her grandma and these people who are actually related to her that she hasn't grown up with, and they don't know her and she doesn't know them.
0: Yeah, estrangement is kind of like a running theme throughout all three of the books, and while Kate has to be like really mercenary in the way that she leverages her beauty, there's kind of like that added layer, as you said, of her wanting to reconcile her family, but like something that kind of shows like how young she is and how like untested she is, is the fact that she, she thinks that she can do it. Like she thinks that reconciliation is a given and that if she just is so good and is, and ingratiates herself and shows that there's nothing wrong with being the daughter of an actress. Like, if there's nothing wrong with her, like, she has studied, she knows what to say and what to do. She thinks that if all of that goes well, and it, it'll it'll bring bring her father's family back over, which it can't, because they let him go, their own son.
2: Yeah, there's this scene in the book where she finds a bunch of letters that her father kept, and I think that spurs her even more because she sees how her grandmother used to speak to her father and how, like, her uncle and his his brother spoke to him, and I think she really mourns that loss. But like you said, she's too optimistic in what she thinks she can accomplish getting back in, and I think Lady Harrington is that dose of reality. Lady Harrington always frames it as, like, oh, too bad that person doesn't know about your bad connections. Obviously, he
1: doesn't know or he wouldn't approach you in that way. Yeah, I think related to Kate's sort of conception of reconciliation, like throughout the whole book, she's very backwards looking. Like she's like, I have to fix this past generation. Like this is the key to everyone's fit. Like, like everyone in my family's future is cre- like correcting this foundation that she sees. And that doesn't really totally get solved. But she sort of shifts where she's looking by the end of the book because she has this relationship with Will, um, or excuse me, Nick. So this relationship with Nick, who is, is sort of in the middle of one of these situations where if he doesn't talk to Will soon, they may never speak again. And so she's now looking sort of in front of her, like she's she's not looking on like what she can do in the past. It's like how can I support um, Nick in this reconciliation, like if this is what he wants. And I think the final scene where like their families come together for the wedding breakfast. Where it's the black shears and all the people they've been married into, and you sort of see how these families and how these new dynamic dynamics exist. Where um, I think Martha is sitting with someone's husband. I can't remember who Martha is sitting with, but it's like a starchy character and a starchy character. Um, and then you see these little dynamics, and all of a sudden Kate is like, Oh, like when I get married, I can now look forward and the other thing doesn't doesn't matter as much. And that I think that's she really just sort of turns forward. And I think um like people I could see people complaining about this book. They're like, Kate just sort of like suddenly changes her mind about wanting to marry Nick, right? Like, it's like, what's the, the conflict resolution sort of seems to go by really quick. But what happens is that Kate just decides she doesn't want to look back anymore. She wants to move forward. And she's like, of course, I would be a good politician's wife. I'm incredibly charming. I love meeting new people. Like, I could be so good at this. But also all the skills that she was looking at in this like very conservative worldview of getting into the aristocracy, she's now able to apply in a different direction.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's another thing I wanted to talk about, is that it requires skill to social climb, reading people, making the right connections for the group you want to be in. I love Kate's revelation at the end where she figures out why she wanted to marry well. Don't laugh, Nick, but I think it might suit me very well to be a political hostess, and in the meantime, to strive with you toward that end. All those years I've pursued social status with such industry, and lately it's become more and more clear to me that I kept at it because I enjoyed the industry and the challenges at least as much as I longed for the goal itself. So how does Grant frame social climbing, and what instances stand out to you from the book where Kate and Nick, honestly, exhibits the skill as well?
0: Um, Yeah, so there's that scene where Kate is with Lady Harrington, And she kind of, Lady Harrington is trying to tell something to Mrs. Smith and her daughter. And Kate knows that Lady Harrington wants her to react a certain way. So Kate kind of has to like walk this fine line of like doing what she wants without making it seem super obvious. And she nails it.
2: Yes, that's a good scene. And I feel like Nick exemplifies this as well with his connection with Lord Barclay. Like, he knows how much information to reveal to him, how to make the relationship progress in a way that will benefit him in the future. The conversations are a little bit more overt, I think, the difference between men and women. Like, Lord Barclays basically says, do you have any political aspirations? And Nick says, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Whereas Kate has to be a lot more in the
1: background with her machinations. And Nick also talks about this in terms of, like, litigation, because he's currently working as a barrister. And so when he's in the courtroom and there's there's a scene in the courtroom he talks about like what he has to manage in like the people that he has to manage he has to manage the audience and he has to manage their reaction to him and that's just a part of being like a good advocate like that he's taking on these cases um and so that's it's like sort of the other side of social climbing is that the same skill set the same skill set that kate is using to work a ballroom nick is using and honing in the courtroom um in order to advocate for his clients and he's a really good litigator like he's very skilled at this and that's why he's able to tutor Barkley because he's witnesses him and says, like, you're good at this. I want to be better at it. Um, so it is like a very it's a learned skill for both of them.
0: So when we're thinking about all three books uh, together as a whole uh, family and reconciliation and whether you can or can't do that is like a big theme of all three books. And the first book, Theo and Martha get maybe not estranged from Martha's family, but they're kind of not as warmly embraced as I think they would hope because of the way that their relationship starts so and that kind of like ripples into the second book right so Theo when he is like seeing Will at a family gathering Theo is trying to ingratiate himself and ingratiate himself to Will because he knows that Will is like his in with the family and Will at the time is not super receptive to it But then later, Will becomes the outcast when Will marries Lydia. Then we go to the third book where Will is almost completely estranged. Martha and Theo still have kind of a little bit of a taint on their marriage. And then Nick is the one who's like trying to hold up the reputation for the entire family just based off of cutting off the appropriate people and acting a certain way. And so when we kind of like get into get to the end and we're looking at all three books and like what's happened, the journey for everyone and maybe not making the most advantageous or respectable marriages, but finding their own happiness that also can deeply hurt other members of their family. So it gets really messy. There are a lot of other historical romances that have family units as like the book to book characters. I I would love to hear kind of how you how you think about how Grant fits into that.
1: Yeah, I guess in terms of the one that makes it makes me think like the most stark contrast is to uh, maybe Mary Bollig's Westcott series, which is much longer. There's so many of them, but that series is really themed around reconciliation because you always go back to the Westcots. Every time there's a conflict, the Westcots are the main family. There's so so many books. The conflict is solved by people returning to the Westcott sort of home base and. Also, like the dynamics in that family are very stagnant. There's always like a big family reunion with the Westcots. Like there, and there are like 30 of them. Like there's always all these chapters where they list all the Westcots out. But I think in this book, because we only we're only dealing with siblings, so it's one generation. And they're I think the reconciliation is more about like a transformation. And I'm thinking about with Martha, the big issue for her is that her siblings don't understand her marriage. They have this image of her as this sort of starchy young girl who's now a young woman she's only 21 at the beginning of the book and they have this image of like what she fits into their dynamic of the black shears and her first marriage didn't really disrupt that and all of a sudden she's a different person and it's they're they're just confused by it and they don't know what to do with it and i think that's sort of the theme of their it's not really even really a reconciliation they just have to understand that she's a she's now in a, per, a person in a relationship and i think at least it like in my sibling dynamics it's like you have to Deal with the fact that people you grew up with are gonna have partners and those partners are gonna have a different family unit. And you just have to you have to go along with that transformation. And sometimes there's I guess like a tension or um, it's rough around the edges for people sometimes. And I like that it feels much more realistic and true to life than something like the Westcots, where everything is solved with reconciliation, reconciliation is the priority and it's total. Like you 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 apologize for what you've done, even if you didn't really do anything wrong, and you were accepted back into the fold. And this, I think, people are not necessarily, Will doesn't apologize for marrying Lydia. He wants to be with her and he's going to do it. And Nick has to learn to understand his new priorities.
2: Yes. And I like that Grant fully explores the ramifications of each character's choices and kind of on theme with what we're saying. This goes on into the next books. It's not completely neatly wrapped up at the end of the first book. It just keeps rippling
1: through each of them. I don't know of another trilogy that has, like, like, I it's like, yeah, like, uh, Lady Awakened is my favorite, but it's like, because I have to pick one. Like, that's, the other two are both five-star books. Like, I love, I love all three books. I've not read the novella yet. I'm, like, savoring it because I, I I'll be done with Grant after I read the novella. <laughs> I'll be so sad.
0: And they, they all enhance each other, too. Like, you can read them so easily as a standalone. You aren't missing anything. But, like, I, that was something that I truly cherished going back, reading them, kind of knowing uh, knowing all of the characters and, like, how they would interact and what the consequences would be. Everything kind of, like, took on, like, I, I just wonder, like, how much of that she planned out. Like, that's just.
1: It's, like, an epic. It's so so fun to see, like, Nick in A Lady Awakened, and you're like, you don't even know what's coming, buddy. Like. <laughs> 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 we all do free word-of-mouth marketing. Yeah, please write more books. We will shout you out, Cecilia Grant. You're our hero. Uh- I'll make
0: TikToks. I'll do what you want. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the
2: end. (laughs) Don't steal babies.